always presumed that I would come to university in Australia, go straight back to Zim and, and take over farming, but obviously things changed quite dramatically in 2000. So from 1980 to 2000, which is actually when I left school, hugely prosperous, a very rapidly growing ag sector and tourism sector. There was some land redistribution which saw community of about 500 farmers in, in our farming district down to about two. Basically just had to accept at the age of 20 and, and my mum was killed in that process and um, decided to stay in Australia, work out a new way to go forward. My one brother had a brain aneurysm and my other brother was pretty much chased out and he moved to, moved to Kenya. And my dad ended up moving to England and so we went from a you know, big farming family to, to everybody dispersed all over the place. So we didn't really have much option other than to adapt. If we can't change, you've got to be able to create a new future. And so that's what I went about doing. Well, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and I just want to say thank you so much for listening in. I love having these conversations. I love sharing them with you. And our guests are just honestly absolutely bloody incredible. Today, I'm sitting down on Wadarung country here in Geelong, and I'd like to extend my respects to the traditional custodians on the lands wherever you're taking our podcast. If you want to hit us up, Instagram's the best place. Let us know. Take a photo, whatever it might be. What are you up to? Where are you listening to our podcast? We might just choose, I don't know, let's say five, maybe ten different people. We'll send you some hats and who knows what other merch we can find. Today, we're kicking off what will be the first of a series that we're doing partnering with Nuffield Australia. We'll be talking to different Nuffield scholars over the next 12 months. And I'll tell you what, today's episode with Jack Milbank is truly just remarkable. It's inspiring, it's heartbreaking, it's just... The man has done so much, but back in 2000, over a three-month period, Jack's world would be turned upside down and it would change forever. He thought that he was going to be coming over to Australia, studying at university and then heading back to Zimbabwe. But around 2000, Zimbabwe went through a seismic shift. His family lost their family farm through restructure of farming land and his mother tragically passed away at the same time. It prompted him that he needed to forge a new path here in Australia and agriculture was what he absolutely knew and loved and I tell you, he never ever looked back. So when we look at his resume, Jack is one of those people who must have more hours in the day than anyone else because he's worked in horticulture, he's started a global biotechnology business, he's run a microbrewery, he's importing cattle genetics from Africa, he's working across a variety of ag industries. In 2007, he did his Nuffield Scholarship. Today, he's a father, farmer, beer maker, cattle breeder, agronomist, you name it, and the guy has done it. It is amazing. So let's jump into this week's episode. Welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Excellent, Ollie. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm genuinely fascinated by everything you've achieved, but would love to know, where were the early interests for you in agriculture? And can you tell me a little bit about growing up in Zimbabwe? Sure. So it stems right back to probably my grandfather moving to Kenya straight after World War II. So on my dad's side, we he went to join an ancient uncle that originally moved out to Kenya in about 1908 and started breeding baran in northern Kenya. So I had a strong sort of interest with cattle on my dad's side. On my mum's side, my grandfather was an agronomist that worked for the British Imperial Chemical Company and was posted to Jamaica where my mum was born. So he was managing sugarcane production in Jamaica 
and then eventually moved to Kenya where he set up coffee production. So I suppose having a beef farming grandparents and parents on the one side and agronomists on the other, I've ended up yeah, pursuing both both sides of ag. And my grandfather on my mother's side was a very innovative guy and actually was developed a you know vermouth which was a fermented orange drink so that sort of got me into the brewing or value adding agricultural commodities that are not otherwise able to be sold that was as a result of the unilateral declaration of independence in rhodesia in about 1965 so the markets to europe closed and they had to think of another thing to do with all the oranges that they had been producing for export yeah so so i suppose my passion for cattle i used to as a kid in school holidays be in the passenger seat of my dad's pickup and drive around the tribal trust lands or or the you know just middle of the bush in in zimbabwe he would buy cattle they were all indigenous cattle that were tough fertile put on weight quickly he used to carry huge wads of zimbabwe dollars in the glove box of the car and then developed a trusted relationship with indigenous suppliers all across, you know, within a sort of 200 kilometer radius. So we ran about a thousand breeders and then had a butchery where we killed, my parents killed probably three or four head a week and supplied the buses that used to come from Harare to the tribal trust lands every weekend. Yeah, so I suppose that's that was my early exposure to riding horses every day, mustering cattle, and yeah and then driving around trading a bit we didn't do a lot of detailed breeding programs my mum did establish phenomenal pedigree beef master herd there was a lot of early engagement with cattle but i didn't quite know what direction it, it would lead me down or what would be required to get there to to get back to having cattle because i always presumed that i would come to university in australia go straight back to zim and, and take over farming but obviously things changed quite dramatically in, in 2000 and um, yeah I had to chart a different course um, yeah which has led me down some very interesting uh, avenues. Can you share a little bit more what happened in 2000 and what was the I guess the evolution that was happening in Zimbabwe? Yeah so so obviously you know our family had been there since the mid-60s and there's a, a bush war that started in the early 1970s that continued on to 1979 when, or 1980 when there was independence and some Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. So I was born at the end of 1979 or the middle of 1979, right at the end of the war. And it was a very, so from 1980 to 2000, pretty much, or, or 97, 98, which is actually when I left school, hugely prosperous, a very rapidly growing ag sector and tourism sector. So my dad actually established in partnership with Jeff Kenter, Abercrombie and Kent, where he then was involved in taking people on safari all around Southern Africa. And my mum was running the five farms. So there was a lot of um, agricultural production. I think at the time through the mid-90s, Zimbabwe was exporting about 6 million head of beef cattle to Europe, which they don't export any today. So it's, it's a huge change to, to go from exporting 6 million to not exporting any. Yeah, there was some land redistribution that needed to occur. And obviously, there's a referendum that Mugabe lost and, yeah, decided to, in, you know, I suppose, commence the land redistribution, which saw our sort of community of about 
I don't know, 500 farmers in, in our farming district down to about two. Yeah, so I mean, it was it was a, a seismic shift in the country's economy and I suppose led to about a 15-year decline in productivity and mass inflation and mass unemployment and a sort of a reset of the ag sector. I haven't been there for a number of years, so can't talk with too much authority as to the latest situation and what's happening there now, but there needed to be a reset and so our farms were were taken and yeah basically just had to accept at the age of 20 and, and my mum my was killed in that process and um, decided I suppose at the age of 20 to stay in Australia and work out a new way to go forward and unfortunately it, it was very difficult to get into beef cattle at that point so I chose to work in horticulture because it was more cash flow it was easier to get a job as an agronomist and yeah, I quickly worked worked my way through that process. It was a bit of a dispersion from Zim because then my my one brother got uh, had a, a brain aneurysm and my other brother was pretty much chased out and he moved to moved to Kenya. My dad ended up moving to England and so we went from a you know big farming family to to everybody dispersed all over the place so we didn't really have much option other than to adapt and yeah and, and uh, if we can't can't change you've got to be able to create a new future and so that's what i went about doing just one question just stepping back slightly so you'd mentioned that the plan was to come to australia go to university and then go back to zim so like were you looking to study an ag degree a business degree what was it and why was australia the place that you wanted to go to study yeah, sure. So I was doing an agronomy degree to, well, my eldest brother went to Sirencester in the UK. Uh, my middle brother went to UNE in Armadale, and I went to UQ Gatton. The reason for choosing Oz was it's a, you know, similar to me choosing to use African cattle genetics, from, you know, in Australia. It was a similar production environment, similar temperature, and I thought I could learn far more from um, ag in Queensland than I could learning ag in Sirencester in the UK. It's like trying to breed Herefords in, in Australia. It's not matched to the conditions. So I applied my thinking of, you know, that it would be a far more relevant education to come to university in Australia and it had far more applicability to farming in, in Zimbabwe. So starting literally from nothing here in Australia, you had your university degree, your family had dispersed kind of all over the world. What was your mentality at that time in terms of chasing opportunities, creating something, or was it just about being thankful that you were kind of in a safe place? Yeah, sure. So it obviously quite disruptive and your whole life you think you're going to do something for that to suddenly change in a three-month window does make you reevaluate things pretty quickly and you don't actually have much choice. You, You have to innovate. So... I was a little bit upset or, you know, I, I really wanted to go home, but thought I, I've got to be able to create a new future. And so the only way to do it is to look forward and, and pursue every opportunity that presents itself with as much vigor and passion as I possibly could. And, you know, if it involved, um, so we, we bought and renovated houses. I was pretty pushy as a, as a new grad asking for pay rises with my boss, taking on responsibility. I was the first one working on remote soil moisture monitoring. We worked with Enviroscan and then that became a sort of project where I was involved in what became the John Deere Field Sense. So sort of 
working out how to transmit data via FTP from a, a probe to a logger and then up into the cloud. So very early days of remote sensing, I was using UHF radios. And yeah, I suppose that then took me to California where I trained a lot of the Californian tomato and almond farmers on irrigation monitoring because uh, in those early days, Oz was a leader in, in ag and water management. So I was a young, energetic guy looking at new technology and ways to improve hort. And so that gave me access to some good relationships of big farmers in California and then across Australia. And yeah, then I suppose traveled a bit and came back to Australia and was lucky enough to get a job with, with Ausveg as the sort of industry development officer for Northern Australia. So that was pursuing projects with researchers to make sure that levy funds were spent in the most effective manner and contributed to the yeah, productivity of the all of the veggie growers in Northern Australia. So that got me sort of an in working with a lot of science-backed researchers, research providers, innovative growers, which ultimately led me to buy the company that I'd started working for. So CropTech was sold to T-Systems and then John Deere. And so I, I bought the company off John Deere in 2009 as a 20, I don't know, 28-year-old or so. So it didn't take me, or I might have been a bit older, sorry, because we ended up buying a farm in between. So, yeah, but I, I soon realized that I wasn't a great employee. I'm possibly better now that I've mellowed with age, but at a young age, I was pretty tenacious and wanted to pursue being my own boss in a new country. And so, yeah, farming was the first start with that where we, we had a nectarine and passion fruit orchard. So that gave me sort of independence. And yeah, and then purchasing crop tech off of John Deere gave me a team of agronomists and, and scientists. So I learned to value what good science and good technology can do to agriculture. And yeah, I suppose set about revamping that business and the software that managed all the samples that went through the laboratory. And it became evident as I was looking after growers in our area, there was other issues that chemistry wasn't addressing and that nutrition wasn't addressing. There was a couple of floods in Bundaberg in 2011 and 2013 that resulted in a perfect storm of some disease outbreaks. I then developed a microbial inoculant company to address those issues. So a few of the bigger tomato farmers said, well, we need a, a solution. And yes, I started producing a bacillus, a strain of bacillus for microbial control of some of the diseases that were occurring in the in the tomato industry. Yeah, and, and that continued on. And But it gave me, I suppose, a, a good foundation for broadening the exposure to to risk so one thing when you come out of a country that you lose everything it it you soon learn about risk mitigation and diversifying your exposure and making sure that you're working both up and down the supply chain as well as broadly across it which is possibly why i've got such a broad portfolio of interests and things so that if something's not working hopefully something else is i want to move into that in two seconds i actually just want to bounce back because i've had a few conversations with people recently people who i guess have and a big part which i'm sure you're so privy with in australian agriculture is is the piece around succession and i would love to know with what you know through your experiences and how you're able to bounce back from i guess yeah losing your mother your family dispersing losing the prospect of what you thought you were always going to do actually 
disappearing in quite a short period of time. What learnings did you get from it and what could other people who are listening take away from that? Sure. The number one thing is building a community of supportive people around you. And so that is probably the most challenging thing because it's Australians naturally tend to be quite self-sufficient, so quite independent and isolate themselves, whereas you know, and that's as a result of having to, you know, necessity, so survival. So they've adapted to be self-sufficient. But what that does, it leads to a competitive atmosphere. So, you know, it's you against your neighbor as opposed to you working with your neighbor. Africa is a very different mentality because it's a minority population of farmers. They're serving an export market. You've got to collaborate and you've got to work in partnership with your fellow producers as a community and share research and share resources and share expertise towards a common goal. Far too often in, in Australian ag, I've noticed that it's improving slowly, but it's very slow to change. You've got to be adaptive and you've got to, you've got to work collaboratively, you know, not competing with one another. We compete far too much between cattle breeds, between crops, between farmers of the same crop, you know, then competing for export markets instead of you know, building the market together, expanding a production to, to serve it together. So that comes down then into the succession planning side of things where, yeah, there's a, an absurd historical thought process that the boys need to inherit more than the girls, which is just absurd. You know, I've been involved in a science-based ag business servicing some of the biggest producers around the world in agriculture, and I employed 12 women in the laboratory. So we were a girls-only company for a number of years and far more capable, far more diligent and attention to detail. And I think that's starting to change, you know, gradually, but we really need the historical, the older, the boomer generations to be the progressive ones. But as they say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. There's, you know, it's going to be here and there. There's some very progressive older farmers uh, that have got really good progress, you know, uh, succession plans in place and handing over. But as a rule of thumb, the self-sufficiency leads to selfishness, which leads to poor succession planning because you're, you're being selfish about it, as opposed to this open community-minded sharing attitude that we all benefit. And particularly if you look at maternal societies versus paternal societies, Maternal societies tend to have more of a sharing attitude, whereas paternal societies tend to be a more survival and selfish attitude. So I think engagement of daughters is a key way to the hearts of some of the old boomer dads. And if, if uh, so, I'd, I suppose a call to action would be any of the young wives, young girlfriends that have got some sway to contribute to the discussions and to make sure that it's fair and equitable and community-based and collaborative. And that's going to be the way forward for a new generation and a new partnership to take the business forward. Yeah, that, that's just that's my view that I've found so far. No, thank you for sharing. So before we probably jump in, because I feel like at 26, 27, you, you decided you'd been in the workforce for a couple of years and, and you thought you'd study a Nuffield scholarship. So at that point in time, and I think, what was it that you were hoping to get out of studying in Nuffield and why did you choose the topic that you did around horticulture? Yeah, sure. So 
I was tenacious, or, you know, ambitious, and you know, I'd sort of set my objective when I left university to I wanted to own my own farm again. Well, fortunately, I achieved that very quickly. And so I almost had to reset once I had the farm and I couldn't expand any more based on the size of where we were and the size of the market. We, we produced about 4,000 passion fruit vines and it, I chose that because it was a high value, good cash flow crop. Uh, that's something I had to have as a startup with no backing. Yeah, so I suppose Nuffield presented the opportunity to broaden my horizon and see what other markets might exist or how to do things differently and to, so I suppose, pursue that continued education and continued building of networks and relationships, which it, it did perfectly. So uh, I chose a what would be, you know, quite early stages for regenerative ag and carbon efficient supply chains and benefit on the on the environment and the local economy and value adding of products now those were all topics i was keen to investigate further and how they could be assembled as a complex suite of ideas into a single business so yeah through that journey i on my return from nuffield is when i bought the lab off john deere and then that morphed into how to put in, into practice the low-impact, low-energy supply chains, how to value-add agricultural commodities, how to have a, a branded presence so that you control the supply chain and your profitability and you're less exposed to environmental risk, which ultimately led me to building the brewery, which sounds like a, a strange concept, but it was in, early, in sort of 2014 when I started it, craft beer was on the up and up. And I was taking hops, barley, yeast, using my expertise that I developed in brewing, employing people. We had a retail venue in the Bundberg CBD. And yeah, it was, an, it was an ability to assemble ingredients, value add them, put them in a retail presence and engage and use rainwater and solar in the whole process. So, And it was a community hub where people could come and connect. We didn't have any screens. It's just it was time for people to connect and share and re-engage. So, yeah, I mean, that was, a, in my view, what the sort of my Nuffield scholarship taught me was, yeah, to try and put all of those elements together. I've then subsequently, it you know, reiterated or had a stage two release of that as I'm working on my cattle business where we've assembled, you know, a suite of genetics that we then partner with other recip herds and people and we've built a community of 50 scientists around the world working together on a sort of Australia's newest composite breed called the Solera. So I suppose what I've learned is you've got to build the community of people around you with expertise and science, develop those relationships up and down the supply chain. Um, so we have you know, someone that works closely with feedlots. We've got others that are doctors that work in education of impact of meat quality consumption. We've got an embryologist that's, a, you know, one of the sort of world leaders in embryology. So assembling the community of people, of experts, taking whatever ingredient it is, and I've just sort of moved through the journey, and that can be grain or hops, or it can be a semen straw, or it can be... A tomato. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's the the same process exists where you've got to build a team of people around you, and it's a little bit like brain fitness. So you're 
your neurons that fire, if you do it off, often enough, you then learn how to assemble a team of people pretty quickly. Yeah, so let's talk to that because I'm fascinated and this is the part which I'm incredibly curious about but also just don't understand how you do it. Like how much of your time is spent in the thinking of how things are going to do, how things are going to work, etc., who's going to do what versus the actual doing of it? Sure. I, I try and delegate myself out of a job wherever possible. So you've got to be able to be a rap. Well, I've learned to be a rapid thinker. You know, through my lived experience, I've had to think on my feet since the age of, t- well, all my life, you know. So, so most people responding to cues in their environment and then acting. So I, I always use the example of someone crossing the road that's been brought up in a very safe environment where everybody's rule abiding and it's very predictable. You walk up to a pedestrian crossing, you look at the green and red light ahead of you. If it's red, you stop. If it's green, you walk. Whereas when I walk up to a a pedestrian crossing, I look and see if there's a car coming first. If there's a motorbike, if there's someone else around me, I don't really care whether the light's red or green. It's the environment around me that I'm aware of. And then I take my cues on the decision to be made off that. So it's it's a very different way of thinking. And so it's preemptive. You're looking at what risks exist. You're looking at what am I going to do in the situation and how can I construct an environment around me that protects myself, provides an avenue to pursue. And then who am I going to need around me to to create that opportunity? So yeah, I suppose the the thinking of a, a business idea and assembling what's needed and the strategy of how to execute it starts with speaking to people and getting a broad, you know, like any research, you'd cast the net widely. So when we're building AgPro, which is our software data platform that we spun out from from Novum as an ag tech platform, I wanted to assemble something that had all the decision-making tools necessary in a farming system. So I wanted to know where an animal is. So I spoke to Series Tag and we got an agreement in place with Series Tag to track animal location. Need to know how much it weighs. So we spoke to OptiWay for in, in paddock weighing. I wanted to know the condition of the pasture that it's eating. So you speak to data farming and you get a, a layer of NDVI imagery in the background. I then spoke to breed plan and work out, okay, if we're doing phenotype measurements, what are we measuring? So then you put in place compatibility with other software systems that ensure you can record all of those things. We then need to do genomic verification of things. So you speak to Neogen or someone else that might offer genomic sequencing. You speak to researchers that are conducting current work and go, how can I work with you? How can I be part of your research? And then it's just pursuing it and explaining the benefits of what you're doing and seeing whether it works for others and you iterate and you then refine it and go, okay, well, we don't need 10 different mapping companies. We just need the best one. We don't need every sort of soil moisture sensor. We just need the best one. Yeah, and so I suppose from the beef genetics, I cast the net very widely and people always laugh at me because they think I'm either indecisive or, or trying to pursue too many things. So when I went into cattle, I bought six pedigree heifers of each breed so across 10 breeds instead of one herd of something I, I wanted one beautiful herd of a uniform cattle but you've got to go through the process to ensure that you're not missing anything so i bought murray gray i bought red angus simmental charolais bond aquitaine you know we're breeding a, a, a tropically adapted slick parasite resistant fertile animal that doesn't have any brahmin content in it and so i needed to 
see all of those crosses and yeah you through that process you then eliminate areas that you don't need to worry about and naturally you you sort of end up following the thing that does work that's a bit of my philosophy in assembling things versus and getting the scientists and the leaders to do some of the work but you've got to know what needs to be done so you've got to be able to roll your sleeves up and do everything you're expecting somebody else to do as well but that doesn't mean to say that you have to do all of it what it means you just know have to know how to do it so that you can be a responsible advisor or manager of that process and have realistic expectations so you know all the f- sort of early embryo programs you know I soon learned that it's it's unrealistic to try and do more than 10 donor cows in a day so then if you're the one needling twice a day for 10 days when I then speak to cooperator herds I know what they're going to be up for you know if I'm expecting them to flush and get embryos etc so you you got to know what you got to do set up the objective and then constantly zoom back out refine your thinking and then redeploy in that in a, that same strategic direction Farming in Australia is never without opportunity nor its challenges from season to season and from day to day producers manage a variety of risks and rewards as they produce the vast range of commodities global markets are now demanding ANZ have been supporting Aussie farmers to take opportunities and manage through challenges for over 150 years They're a proud and long-term partner of Nuffield Australia, supporting its goal of capacity building for producers, their businesses, industry and rural community. Their network of regionally based agribusiness bankers are ready to support both their existing customers and any farming businesses seeking a review of their banking arrangements at any time. Find your local ANZ agribusiness manager at anz.com. It's amazing how many different things you can stay across. <laughs> and do if you were to bring someone new into your team today for day one like how much info do you give them because from where i see it it seems like obviously the team that you have have to be really capable they have to grab the lead and actually run with it and pass the information back to you and not need you for all the different decisions or interactions that are needed so like how do you actually support your staff one to empower them but to help develop them to go actually what does jack need to know versus yep. what doesn't he need to know sure so i've been through different processes of employing up to 30 agronomists and staff down to employing none so employees are fundamentally avoiding full responsibility and ownership of a process they they want a boss to take some of the thing and they want stability of a salary coming in so by very nature of choosing to be an employee as opposed to employer or an independent contractor or something you you're avoiding some level of responsibility or risk so i've gone full circle through believing i needed to be my own boss and have lots of people working for me under me whatever to to deliver on a suite of objectives to building and this is where i come back to that community of of scientists and experts so i now have learned how to build a community of people that have got a vested interest in the process themselves and you know the, i've just come back from brisbane where we had our sort of our inaugural celera and sanger international meeting where we've got some of the world's leading scientists we've got dr tad sonstergaard from delaware we've got Olivia Hanotti from Ilri in Ethiopia we've got PJ Butler in Texas we've got Udo Mani is one of the world's leading embryologists we we had you know Wagyu feedlot consultants you know everybody that with a that's an expert in their field 
that's bought into the process and they want to be part of the journey. And so I suppose you do have to have some runs on the board to, in that regard for them to have that buy-in. But part of it is learning to be a good communicator and having a contagious approach to articulating your program. What are we trying to accomplish here, guys? So I find that done far more effectively with a cooperative group of people that each have their own responsibilities, their own business, but are looking for some leadership to fall into a system that's going to deliver them more value. An employee is going to be selfish in that regard. They want their money and their salary, and they're not necessarily building the dream for you or with you because it's not my dream. It's got to be a collective dream. That's the only way people are going to have buy-in is if they can see themselves in that dream and they can see how your vision can help fulfill their dream. And so it's about being free with your ideas and encouraging and supportive of people around you that they then think, geez, I'm going to, I'm going to go with whatever Jack's working on because I can see how it's going to benefit me. That I think is the key. You've got to, you've got to show what's in it for me, for the people that you work with around you. And, but then be smart enough that you can construct a system that then builds on the core the core logic of the whole process. So, you know, we, we, we've built software that manages animal pedigrees and registrations and export. We've secured exclusive genetics out of Africa that we can use to distribute around the world. But we need cooperative breeders that then are going to buy those, those genetics, that are going to upload and manage their animals on our software, that are going to use our inoculants on their pastures, that are going to use the laboratory to improve their soil health and you know trade their carbon so we've just built i suppose a portfolio of solutions that all complement each other and feed into one another that benefits the overall production system so i'm just one of the beneficiaries along with all the other cooperators in our community of agricultural people and have you learned on that nuffield network throughout this like in, in establishing these businesses and getting information etc yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I try and just take each person on their merits. and But what Nuffield teaches you to do is, is maintain a network and refer to people and ask questions. Um, so Don Madden's been a, a fantastic support in obviously with Smithfield. And yeah, I mean, there's there's people all over. Um, you know, Trent, Trent DiPoli is one of my business partners. He's He's been a great help. So there's there's lots of people throughout Nuffield that we've worked with and, you know, but it's it's only one ingredient. You've got to cast in it nice and wide and across to different countries. Yeah, but Nuffield definitely teaches you how to, to work responsibly and ethically within a network and ensure that, you, that you're held accountable and that you make good decisions. Yeah, which I think is important in ag to maintain that ethical position. But at the same time, People are afraid of uncertainty, but you can't change the past. Everything that, that's been done in the past is you can't change it. And so in order to create a future, so to create a new market, create a new product or a new system or a new breed or something, it doesn't exist yet. So if you've got to create it, you've got to have vision and you've got to get people to buy into your vision. And of course, it's going to be risky because it's not yet determined. So you've got to factor in as many of the risk mitigation measures, but explain the risks and explain that we need to create something new. 
because if we're not adapting and innovating and, and implementing change, we're stagnant and we're going backwards. And it will just be a matter of time before someone innovates and goes ahead of us. So embracing change is one of the key things that I would say is, is a sort of, is a not negotiable. You've got to be able to embrace change. And if you look at the rate of change of some of the genetics, cattle genetics in Australia or scientific services or whatever, it's usually farmers are not that keen to change. They're very conservative in general. And I think we're at risk of being left behind constantly. And so those that adapt to change quickest and bring on new solutions and acknowledge that there's a risk there. There's going to be some failures, but fail fail small, fail fast, get up again and, and try something different or iterate it. It doesn't mean you, you completely neglect everything or start again from scratch. Just look at the component. There's nuance. What failed, what didn't fail? And then let's pick up and pursue the things that didn't with twice as much energy as the, the first time. So that's my theory on that. Well, lots of great advice in that. And I think it's so applicable in so many different ways. And you've done it, whether it was in the brewing business of going, well, actually, how do we then work with local farmers, exactly as you're saying there, to value add and bring new and flavorful kind of ingredients, but through the imperfect products and things that you've done with the, the various fruit and veggies that you incorporated. I'd love to know well, a couple of questions here. Out of all the projects you've worked on, is there one that's been your pet project or your favorite one that just yeah, sits so closely to your heart. Sure. So the lab and soil testing and agronomy was a means to an end. I enjoyed being a good agronomist and a good scientist, but it's not my true passion. The inoculant was solving other people's problems for them. The brewery was really fun and engaging and was value-adding and fulfilling. You know, But there's elements of it within hospitality and dealing with the public that you know got tiring after five years software has been amazing building a global platform that's used all over the world with with laboratories and sensor companies and hardware companies that's been an, an essential part of the platform that enables us to breed good genetics so Probably one of the things I really enjoyed is creating and breeding new animals. You know, some of the semen embryos were made in 1989. And to see those calves hit the ground and be born 35 years later in a new continent on my farm that I've, you know, been involved in getting that embryo put in and seeing them being born is, yeah, that's probably pretty special. I had a, a fantastic discovery the other day. So one of the early projects was was creating a telomere-to-telomere study of, a, of a, an animal, which was a Thule cross a Wagyu. So looking for the broadest extent of the bovine genome. So to trying to identify the most number of genes that could be contained in a single animal so that they could fully genomically describe every trait of that animal. And I think it was part of the Thousand Bulls Genome Project, and we worked with a range of people. But, yeah, I think that one of my bulls has then been identified as the bull with the broadest genetic base and will be the, the future global reference sire. So every animal moving forward will be benchmarked against his genetic code as to whether they are carriers of whichever genes because he's got the, the most number of bovine genes possible that have then all been fully described. So seeing... Having that bull on my farm and then working out what cars we're going to put them to and, and then seeing what sort of progeny we're going to make, that's the most satisfying. Yeah, and then now working with this 
awesome group of Solera cooperators around the world in Paraguay, in Texas, in South Africa, in Zim. We've just sent you know a load of Thule Cross Angus to uh, one of our customers that we sold the semen to. That's gone to Malaysia. We've sent export semen to Papua New Guinea. I'm about to send another bull back to Namibia. So you know now seeing the work that our genetics is doing that's used our software, our inoculants, our soil health, the various elements to now have stud bulls and semen that we're selling around the world and all that, that progeny popping up in countries all over the place is, is hugely satisfying. So, yeah, just looking forward to Beef Week next year in May. Um, we'll have, a, you know, a range of cattle on, you know, both being shown as well as, you know, the technology being displayed. And, yeah, so I, I think that's going to be satisfying having a whole a whole set of Thule bulls and, you know, I suppose that's connection back to my roots and to see them thrive in Australia where they where all the CSIRO scientists said that, that that's the perfect breed for Australia. So, again, I'm just following good scientific advice and now trying to get adoption and people to adapt to change. And so um, the early adopters will will hopefully be beneficiaries and, yeah, it's going to be an exciting few years ahead. Absolutely. Oh, I'll look forward to meeting you at Beef next year. So just a couple of quick questions to finish off. If you were to redo your Nuffield now, what would be what would be the topic that you think you'd study? Jeepers. Okay. If I reflect on my initial topic of, of uh, globally competitive horticultural production processing marketing with using renewable energy with a net benefit on regional ecosystems and environment, it was a pretty all-inclusive subject, but... It doesn't necessarily need to just be horticultural. You know, ag is such an interconnected industry with so many cross-pollinations possible. I would only really just change it to, instead of horticulture, I'll just say agricultural so that it just covers everything. doesn't matter what it is. And I'd probably more change the countries I went to visit. So I visited India because they were leaders in biogas. And so looking at their bio, you know, biorenewables. And I visited New Zealand because uh, they were obviously still our leaders in export and looking at how they exported their passion fruit around the world. Yeah, and then UAE looking at high-end restaurants uh, that serve value-added products. So to select markets for products with the highest possible margin. I think there's a lot to be learnt. We don't always have to pursue the latest innovation because there's a lot of knowledge that exists in ancient cultures. And so we've only really been doing things differently for the last two or 300 years, whereas some cultures have been mastering how they do things in agriculture for a lot, lot longer than us. So I think I'd probably change and, and look at how some ancient cultures did things and take that into my thinking into the future as to how to do things better because as, as productive as conventional industrial agriculture has been it's been pretty destructive of the planet so therefore not very sustainable and yeah i think we really need to shift the sustainability but not look at it through just some, such a tunnel vision of just carbon farming or you know just you know there's nuance we've got to have a breadth of experience and a breadth of expertise to look at all the different elements and yeah it's still 
can be simplified and that's where i think some of the ancient cultures around the world whether it's in kenya or whether it's in namibia or the the amazon or in india or in australia it, it doesn't matter but there'd be agricultural communities around the world that would do things differently for a very good reason because they've tried it it's failed in the past and they've re reattempted how to do it slightly differently that has then been sustainable for a long time so western large-scale commercial ag is not sustainable and sure we've got to feed lots of people but we've got to fold in sustainable practices that's more than just greenwashing and, and a word that people use to market their product it's got to be actually a lived process absolutely so on that and this is a question i ask everyone that comes on the podcast so i'd be really interested to get your take on it if you had the chance to go and chat to year 10 students at a metropolitan high school in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, wherever it was. What would you say to them about a career in agriculture and why they should consider it today? Yeah, well, I've got three teenage daughters, one in year 11, one in year going into year nine, so, and then one in going into year six. They're not in a metropolitan, but they've been exposed to ag. And I wrestle with whether I should be encouraging my kids to be involved in ag and what they could do. If I was to advocate whether someone what the opportunities exist there's endless opportunities it's involved in land management ecosystem management you can use technology you can use genetics you can do marketing campaigns you can do social media so the whole gamut of professional expertise can be deployed into the ag sector and it's an earth science and not in geotechnical terms but you know it, it involves landscape management data management, genomics, so much nuance within the agricultural environment or food production. But now it's obviously beyond just food production, it's ecological services. So, you know, I think, yeah, people can't afford to be divorced from agriculture because we're intrinsically linked to it because we all need to eat and we all need to breathe and we all need to drink clean water. So thinking that you can just exist in an industry in a metropolitan area and have no awareness, knowledge or involvement in agriculture is a fallacy because you are, you're eating every day is, is on lots of bumper stickers. Thank a farmer for your next meal. You know, so I think it's almost a, upon us to say you are involved in agriculture, whether you like it or not, how are you going to contribute to it? And that's exactly the, the kind of view that we're trying to take here at Humans Vag. It's looking at anyone who produces, moves or consumes and he's conscious in their decision-making around it and looking at ways that they can do it better, differently, whatever it might be, we actually see as a human of agriculture. So thanks for that, Jack. And, and thank you so much for your time today to sit down for a bit of a chat. Awesome, Ollie. Thanks so much. And yeah, good on you for the work you're doing. And a big piece of it is educating the, the broader market and people and engagement and getting people supportive of, yeah, of agriculture. And so, yeah, thanks for all that you do. Well... That's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. Say up.